plant's a part of, we are at the General Assembly. And General Assembly is the ruling elders, the men who help lead the church, and the pastors, teaching elders, who all come together to make do the business of the church. So it's about two and a half, three thousand people, something like that. Um, uh, I love being in church plants and singing, but when you get in, when you're a guy like me and you and I like to sing, when you get into um, a group that size, you can really sing and you don't overpower the whole thing because. Uh, those that went to Pinewood with me know that I could sing as loud as the praise band with their mics, but without. So anyway, it was good to be there for that. Um, it was also good. We dealt with a number of issues, um, a lot of church planning things that we talked about. We get a report from every committee of the General Assembly. There's a camp that the denomination owns. There's a college. There's a seminary. There's other ministries. Mercy Ministry gave a really good report this year. Um, our group, Mission to the World, gave a report, brought back swag for the church. Um, Hal and I did. Um, we brought back cups from Mission to, Nor to the World. That's the organization that does ministry from this denomination all over the world and sends out missionaries. If you'd like a cup for your family, they had some, and I, we asked for some for our church, and they gave them to us because I've known them forever, worked for them for 28 years. But it's about refugees, and they were, had a big push on ministering to refugees in Europe and in the United States. So if you'd like a cup to remind you to pray for refugees and those ministering to refugees, they're outside in pretty nice, nice mugs. You can thank Hal for hauling those around. Um, we also had a great time with our third mill booth. We had a huge booth, and uh, Hal went up and helped um, as a volunteer, helped with that. And uh, so if he's hoarse at all this morning, it's from talking all week long to everybody. Um, we also had, um, through Third Mill, just to give you some highlights, we had um, a good interaction on Farsi, which is a new language we've been working on the last few months. And we got to meet with the translator, the head of the translation team, and that was really exciting to, to do that and see that ministry move forward. And you can also be praying, we met with uh, college, schools can use our material. We met with Geneva College and their excited, at least as of now, to see Third Mill become their online presence for a Bible degree for undergrad students, uh, you know, a two-year Bible, to, towards a Bible degree, and, and so that was exciting. But one of the exciting things for Vintage Grace was um, I have a lot of, because I've been a church planner most of my career, I have a lot of church planner friends, and one, one group of those is in Lakeland, in Polk County, and um, they are actually planning four churches this year. One is going to be um, starting here in the next few months, and then they're going to have three that are going to start in January. So I got together with those guys and was praying for them and all those new church plants, and one of them prayed for you. And I just wanted to pass that on, that you've been prayed for at General Assembly, and they were real excited to hear how um, this was all going. You can pray for me on Friday morning. I leave for the Congo. And I'm there for, I don't know, eight, nine days, something. I forget how many days in the air and how many days on the ground. But um, Congo, a little scary right now over there. But uh, just pray for me and teaching and introducing third mill material to them. But um, as we look at this passage today, we're going to be looking at a passage in Luke. Um, but I want to introduce it that it's about friends. And godly, what I call godly friends is the title of the sermon 
a friend of mine was telling about his mom, and he said he came home from middle school, and he talked about his, um, everybody, including his friends, was saying that he was a liar, and they were giving him a hard time. And his mom said to him, well, if one person says that to you, they're an idiot. Don't pay any attention to them. If two or three people say that to you, they might be wrong. But if everybody, including your friends, say it to you, they're probably right. Um, and what it made me think about was the need that we have for friends. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in this passage, godly friends and what that looks like. So if you have your Bibles or you want to look at the uh, screen, you can, um, I think we have it. Do we have it? We have it. We're ready. All right. Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26. I forgot to see whether I was in the same version as you guys, but I'll see what, what, what Russell did. Um, one of these days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing a, on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, <clears throat> Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man that was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them, picked up what he had been laying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Father, as we have come into your midst and worship, we also come before you and we want to hear from you. So I ask, Father, that you would set aside my words, but that your spirit would work in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, that your spirit would cause us to see Jesus, that your spirit would cause us to glorify him, that we would be encouraged with what your son has done here on earth, and he ministered to this men and the other people in this passage. And Father, may we understand it better. May we apply it to our lives. May we apply it to our church. And may we see your name glorified because of our time this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, when you study the Bible, we use this thing we call hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is just how you study the Bible and what you look at. And one of the rules of hermeneutics is to look at the context. And I just wanted to kind of set this story a little bit with the context. In this um, chapter, uh, you have the calling of this, some of the disciples. Now, that's a pretty important event in the life of Jesus and his ministry, to call the men that were going to work with him. But then there are two other events that happen around this story. One is the healing of a leper. I want you to understand that the calling of the disciples is important, but the healing of a leper was something really unusual. Leprosy was a very dangerous disease for them, and to have anything to do with a leper, they were supposed to stay a certain distance away. They were supposed to cry out that they were unclean. This was a big deal to heal a leper. 
And then on the other side of our story is the calling of Levi, the tax collector. And I don't know about you, but every year I pay my taxes. It's hard enough as it is. But in the Jewish days, the tax collector was a representative of the oppressive Roman government, the enemy, who was keeping them somewhat enslaved. And the tax collectors were also cheats for the most part because we're told in other, besides just the Bible, that they would collect the taxes and then take extra for themselves. So it was bad enough the Romans were messing you over. Your own people were messing you over. And that's who Jesus called. So those are the stories on either side of our story. This is a pretty important chapter of the calling of the disciples, the healing of a leprous man that nobody would have dealings with, and the, and the calling to be a follower of Jesus, of this evil person in society. And in the middle of that is this story about a paralyzed man. Now, in every story that we look at in the Bible, we want to see Jesus as the hero. And here, it's very clear that Jesus is the hero. There's a problem. Jesus fixes it. And that's very clear in this story. But as we think about Jesus as the hero, I want you to see in this that he, it says he had the power of the Lord was on him. That's a phenomenal thing. It talks about that he was able to forgive sins. Um, and that's a, something that the Pharisees realized that only God could do. It talks about the authority of God being on earth. And in this case, it's in a physical form that they could see and hear and touch of Jesus, that he came in the flesh and loved them. And that power and that majesty of God also worked out as mercy to this paralyzed man. Now, it doesn't use the word mercy, but it's this concept of Jesus caring about him and doing something for him. Uh, a few chapters later in chapter 7, if you have time and you're thinking about it, you can go look at it. There is a story about uh, a widow lady and her only son dies. Now, you got to understand, in that day and age, if you were a widow, your family took care of you or you were in trouble. There was no Social Security. There was no whatever. That was it. Your kids took care of you. And to have one son and have him die, you were just out. Lose your home, lose your livelihood. You're a beggar, and that's, that's not good. And this man had died, and they're coming, and you, in the story there's this whole group of people coming, and then the whole funeral service is coming, and they kind of, you can almost see them to come together in the street, and, oh, what are you going to do? Because here was this revered teacher, Jesus, who's going around doing things, and then here comes this terrible funeral service. And the passage talks about Jesus reached out and touched the casket. Once again, it's a story about the, the, the man with leprosy. That pre, the, the religious leaders did not have anything to do with unclean, unhealthy, dead. That was all bad. You stayed away from that. And to actually touch the casket meant that you were ceremoniously unclean and that there are things that you couldn't do in the, in the temple and other places until you got clean again. And Jesus in his power touches the casket and eventually raises that man from the dead. But that's a story of mercy, and that's what's happening here, is that Jesus is showing mercy to this paralyzed man. So everything in this chapter, everything in this story relates back to Jesus. And I want to make sure you see Jesus as the ultimate hero. But I also want us to look at the other people in this story. One of the other people is the paralyzed man. We don't have a whole lot about him in this story. It's just he's a paralyzed man. They brought him on a bed, and all this stuff happened to him, and he got healed, and they was forgiven his sins, and he picked up his bed and went home. 
Um, we don't know, totally paralyzed, we don't know a lot of things, but we do know this. He was a man in great need. In that day and age, there weren't a lot of good doctors, there wasn't all the things we have today, there wasn't you know, a, a safety net to take care of him. There was, this was a tough thing to be physically disabled. And he it comes to Jesus. Now, we don't know, the story doesn't tell us, did he go to his friend, did his friends come by and he said, please take me to Jesus? It kind of seems like that they came to him. But either way, he must have heard stories about Jesus. And I imagine them coming down the city street, carrying his bed, you know, the four of them, and him saying, boy, I hope something happens. You know, the anxiousness, uh, the desire to be able to have his health restored, all that kind of stuff, it, this was a difficult situation. I hope we see ourselves in that paralyzed man. We've already sung this morning about we need Jesus. We need his restoration in our life. We need to be brought back to be sons and daughters of God. This paralyzed man is us. We're, without Christ, we're lost in our trespasses and sin. We are in trouble. And so in this story, I hope you see that he comes to Jesus, and Jesus forgives him, and Jesus heals him. But there's also the Pharisees. Pharisees, and you might be here this morning, or you might know somebody that's like this. The Pharisees were questioning and doubting. They were like, how can you say that? How can you do that? You know, who are you? And especially when Jesus said your sins are forgiven, they didn't like that because, as they say, only God can forgive sins. Now, that's kind of strange because Jesus has been going around healing people and doing other great things. But when it came down to the theology of forgiving people, boy, they stepped up to that right away. Um, Hal and I sat in a little bit on General Assembly, and we can tell you that people like to do all the wrangling and voting and all the issues that they face, there's a little bit of that of dealing with hard questions. But in this case, they're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't forgive sins. And Jesus, of course, answers them in the story with, which is easier, forgive sins or heal the man. And, they, and he raises him up. Uh, those are, hopefully you're not here this morning and you can relate to the Pharisees, but maybe you have that on time or on, at times you have those questions, those doubts. But we certainly know people out in our community that are that way. So we can relate to those. But the one I want us to focus on today is the friends, the four friends. Um, at, you know the stories that are out there of great examples of people that befriend someone with a disability. Um, I was going to talk about the one with the guy that's the, the triathlon uh, dad. And he takes his son in a wheelchair, and he does the bike and the swim and the run and all that he does with his son. And it's pretty phenomenal if you've ever seen them. You know, he's swimming, he's got a, a raft, and he's pulling his son in the raft. And he's biking, and he's got his son. I think he sits on the front, which would be scary as all heck to me. Hal's a biker. If I sat in the front and let Hal pedal me around and be like, I'm going to die. Um, but uh, this whole concept of we honor somebody, that there, there's, of course, Lots of other stories. A story someone was talking about this past week about you know the dad that does the wheelchair and the marching band, the guy who plays the trumpet. That's cool. But my favorite example is my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law, um, my father-in-law had. I always get this. Uh, which sclerosis was it? Primary lateral sclerosis, um, which affected him. Is he slowly, slowly lost control of his 
his voluntary muscles. His involuntary kept working, which is different than Lou Gehrig's disease. But it was like that, that he lost control. And over time, he was basically completely paralyzed, lost his voice, um, even lost his ability to blink his eyes when he wanted to. It, was, it got worse and worse and worse over the years. But she loved him. And she was such a great example of loving him well and caring for him. And she had, she had a responsibility to love him and care for him, but she did it so willingly. And it was just a great example of a friend to someone who is disabled. It was a job. It was a responsibility. But she had taken that on, and she had great joy in doing that. Um, we have that same responsibility, if you think about it. In Genesis um, 12, let me just turn there real quick. Genesis 12, uh, verse 2 and 3, it says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the beginning of God dealing with a particular people his people, which we are a part of, and he says, I've blessed you to be a blessing. I didn't just bless you for your own sakes, be happy, warm, and filled. There you go. But he said, I bless you that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the world. So that's part of our responsibility. Romans 3, 21 through 26 talks about that we have um, received the good news, the reconciliation with Christ. My son asked me this morning on the way, are you going to mention propitiation? It's in that passage, which I always like to talk about propitiation because it's that concept of not just being restored in a relationship, but much better in a relationship. We went from being the creation of God who sinned and failed, and when God restored us, we became the sons and daughters of the Most High. So that concept is there in, in Romans that we have received that for the sake of others. We've received that to pass it on, that the good news of the gospel is ours. And then in Matthew 28, we're commanded to go and to teach and to disciple and to carry that good news to the whole world. That's a part of who we are as Christians. And then um, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, it says this. I want to read this real quick. All this is from God through Christ who reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God made his appeal through us that we employ you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's kind of an overview of the responsibilities we have. But normally, when we think about those responsibilities, we think of Russell. He's the preacher. That's his job. Uh, we think of missionaries that are out there doing that. That's what they're supposed to do, reconcile people to God, to take the good news of the gospel to people, to be a blessing to other people. And, yes, we support and send them and do all that kind of stuff, and that's important. But today, this passage is not about a missionary or a preacher or someone else. It's about four friends. And so I want us to see ourselves in these four friends that we have that same responsibility to be a blessing. We have that same responsibility to take the good news. We have that same responsibility of reconciliation to the world around us. And so as we think about that, I want us to focus on what it means to be a godly friend. 
Now, in our passage, in verse 18, I would point out that godly friends start with impossible problems. There was the problem of being paralyzed. I, have a, I had a friend. He died a number of years ago, Vince. He was paralyzed from the neck down. He could move one hand a little bit. And I don't know if you've ever helped someone who is disabled, but it was hard. You had to pick him up. You know, if he wanted to stand up, he had a stand-up pulpit thing that he could stand in, kind of it would hold his body up, and he could kind of be up there and be different than being in his chair. Um, if he wanted to shower, you had to get on your shorts and take him in there. He couldn't do it by himself. I mean, it was hard. Uh, you had to feed him. You had to get him something to drink, everything. I mean, he could talk. And he could move his head, and he could move one arm a little bit, but that was it. It was work. Um, But they had that problem with this guy, to whatever level he was disabled. But they also had a practical problem. They tried to bring him to Jesus. They're trying to do the right thing, and there's this crowd. And you can imagine them with this bed between them, however big it was, kind of pushing their way through and saying, you know, come on, we got to do it, we got to do it, we got to get in there. And the idea is that there was house that the street was packed. Jesus is in there somewhere. All right, so what are we going to do? Well, they start going up on the roof and break through, but they had these practical problems of how do they get them to Jesus? How do they help him? But they also had a spiritual problem. Now, I don't think that they were thinking about the spiritual problem of this man needed to have his sins forgiven. But like that story I told you about from Luke 7 with the dead man, Jesus heals him, but there also he needs that spiritual forgiveness. He needs that spiritual life, as we all do, that we come as people needing spiritual wholeness in Christ. And in Christ, we find new life where we once were dead in our trespasses and sin. We're restored, and that's part of what we see here is that these friends dealt, dealt with the physical problems, the practical problems, and even eventually the spiritual problems of this man. Friends also, godly friends also care for the helpless. We see them picking up this guy. They didn't give up. And I wanted us to connect with that in thinking about the world around us. It's messed up. I was driving up to Greensboro um, with a friend, and a lot of our conversation about the problems in the world around us and what's going on in politics and violence and campuses that are messed up. And it's, all this whole description, and I keep coming back to this, that we are there in part to help a messed up world, paralyzed, disabled, messed up, whatever you want to call it, that we are part of being godly friends to the world around us is looking at it and going, yes, there's a problem. But these godly friends did care for the helpless. They also, I want to point out, think outside of the box. Now, it's easy when you read the passage, they just go up on the roof and dig through the tiles, and lower them down. But this wasn't culturally accepted thing to do, to go up on somebody's. This wasn't the thing that everybody went, oh, good for you. They were like, what the heck are you doing? And you can imagine Jesus in there, and this was tile roof with straw and mud and other stuff, and, you know, Jesus speaking, the stuff is falling down on everybody. I mean, this was not cool. This was like, what are you doing? Um, They thought outside of the box. Now, Calvin talks about this whole concept of them and their faith for this friend. And he says that their faith, this is Calvin, the the old theologian, um, he says their faith is an example 
of faith lived out. Their faith acted. And the fruit of their faith began when they picked up that mat and started walking. And it continued on when they were there breaking into that root. But they wouldn't give up. Their faith said, no, we've got we've to see this through. We want to see Jesus. We want him to see Jesus. But then there's a whole concept that's a really interesting one to think through. And it's that Jesus, when he looks at the man, and they've lowered him down to get him healed, right? That's what they're thinking. And what does Jesus do? Your sins are forgiven you. Now, for a split second, I can see the friends going, wait a minute, we wanted a little more than that. Now, it wasn't very long that Jesus healed him. But while Jesus is making a point to the Pharisees and the scribes, I can see those friends going, okay, now what do we do? Okay, your sins are forgiven, all done. You spend the rest of your life on your mat. Um, no, that's not where they are at. And so they came, and but Jesus says he saw their faith. Now, it's not just the man's faith. To have a relationship with God, you've got to have personal faith in Christ alone for your salvation. Yes, that's true. But there is a concept here where he was blessed because of their faith. Jesus, It says Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And it was because of their faith that it was healed. It was their faith in what Jesus could do that even brought them to that situation. <clears throat> so the question is, how does someone else have an advantage because of our faith? We're here. We're in a community. Does this community need Jesus? Anybody think of anybody around us that families are broken, people are struggling, people have issues? Now, this isn't the worst neighborhood in the whole world, but this neighborhood needs Jesus. And we come and we say we want to be a people of faith. And Calvin talks about this concept of mutual agreement of these four men to say we're going to have an impact here. These four men had faith for him, that they looked and they said, we want to come to Christ and his promise of salvation, his promise of healing. We want to see that happen for him. And Jesus recognized that and valued it. Now, he wasn't forgiven because of their faith, but their faith promoted that. Their faith promoted his healing. Their faith promoted his restoration back to full life in the community and to his family. Now, we think about this for our children. We baptize children in our faith, not their faith, their children. They can't have faith on their own yet at that point. But we come and we say we have faith for God to impact them. We believe that. But this is also doing this for someone else. And so we come as a people, and we want to think outside of the box. We want to do things that maybe the society around us doesn't think are kosher or the right thing to do or, you know, a little bit strange. Here we are meeting on Sunday morning. We give away donuts. We have coffee. We care for one another. People walking by going to the pool going, what are those people doing? But we're here as a people of faith saying we want to impact this community with the gospel. We want to love them. We want to think outside the box. We want to show them mercy. We want to help the the helpless. But they also received answers that they didn't plan on. We don't always, I mean, we'd like to have a church of 500 here in Oakley. That's kind of the answer. We, We want a vibrant, growing church. We don't know what all God's doing. They didn't get there and think, we're looking for forgiveness. Now, which, you know, Jesus makes the point, which is more important? Or which is harder? 
forgiveness or being healed. We would normally think being healed. But I'll tell you what, Jesus was doing something way more important. This had eternal, to forgive his sins, had eternal impact on that man. And so we come and we're saying, God, do something here. We don't know what all that is, but we're looking for God to do something beyond what we're normally looking for. Um, in Luke 4 and in John 3, it talks about the concept that you have to be born again to be a part of the kingdom of God. And that's really what we're looking for in this community, whether it's a church of 500 or a church of 75. We want to see people in this community born again. We want to see people in this community part of the kingdom of God. And so as we work and think and plan and reach out and all the things that we do, meeting every week as an example and a place to come together, it's not just for us. It's so that this community would have more people that know that they are part of the kingdom of God. So godly friends have impossible problems that they deal with. They care for the helpless. They think outside the box. They receive answers that they're not looking for. But they also get to see God being God. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but um, when we were missionaries in Mexico uh, for years, one of the things I told people was I liked being a missionary because let you see God being God when you weren't, you know, you weren't used to, that didn't happen everywhere else. We, we have it here, but we don't always see it. I'll give an example. If you want, we received M&Ms this morning. I forget what the candy was, but there, if you want something like M&Ms, you just go to the store and buy them, okay? Where we were in Mexico, you couldn't do that. There weren't, there weren't that candy, whatever it was the kids wanted. There wasn't that at the store. So they actually prayed that it would show up at the store. We don't have our kids praying for something to show up at the store very often here because our life gets kind of routine and things happen. God does still provide it, but we're not out there looking for it. Well, these friends, they had a chance to see God act, and that's part of what we're doing here. We're not just in whatever church you came from. I, I, we, I was at Pinewood. We could have stayed there, been comfortable. We had our friends. No, we want to get out there and see God act. We want to see God do something through vintage grace. So godly friends get to see God do things to show his power, to show his mercy, to see God on earth, to see God act. And then, of course, godly friends were amazed by the results. They were amazed at these things that God had done. It says that they saw strange things, extraordinary things. Now, we believe that church planning is the key to impacting an area with the gospel. There have been groups that do evangelism. I talked to a good friend of mine who is a very powerful evangelist at GA. In fact, he was talking about the waitress that he was ministering to that morning in the hotel restaurant. Great. But if she comes to know the Lord without a church, she's all alone. And she won't grow and be an impact on her community like that. She needs a church. Church planning is the tool starting new churches and new kingdom communities and new places is the tool that God uses in Scripture and throughout history to raise up and to grow his people. And so uh, this is important. Now, I was struggling how to explain all this, and I just want to go to this really um, quickly through another passage to help us remember this. But if you're thinking about this sermon later, I want you to go to Philippians 2. And I'm just going to hit these real fast. In Philippians 2, I'm not even going to try to read it all. I'll let you read it later. But in Philippians 2, 
it starts about with Jesus humbled himself to come to earth and that we are to be humble. And so as we church plant, we, as we are involved in a new work like this, we want to be humble. It's not us. We're not coming with all the answers. Jesus is the hero of the story. We're just coming to serve and to minister to people and care for them like these four friends. We don't know who they are. They just brought him. We don't know everything about them, but they are the ones that bring him to Jesus. So in church planning, we want to be humble. We want to be interested in others. It talks about there in Philippians. We want to give ourselves like Jesus gave of himself for others. We want to be bearers of light, it talks about in Philippians 2. And we want to be surprised at what God does to see God's results. All of this because we want to be like Calvin talked about. We want to have faith for other people. And so I come to you this morning and I say, what's our role? Our role is to be a loving community for each other but also a community that cares for other people around us, that cares for the helpless, that cares for the families that are destroyed. And so I want us this morning to be challenged by this to be godly friends. So you've got Jesus, you've got the man who was paralyzed, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the godly friends. There is one other group, and that's all the other people. And it says that they were amazed, that they glorified God, that they saw extraordinary things. That's what we want for Oakley. We want people to go, it's amazing. God uses this group of people, and they're having an impact. They're loving people well. They're reaching out in their communities. They're doing all these things. Once again, not for our glory, but for him. As we think about that, I want to challenge you in small groups. We've always done this uh, for years. This has kind of been a tool. But I want to challenge you with the empty chair. And the concept is that in church or in your community group or wherever, You've got a chair that you're thinking about and saying, who's going to fill that chair? Who is God calling you to this week to say, who am I thinking about to see fill that chair? Not because we want more people, not because we want Russell to be a great church planning pastor, but because we want to be this kind of friend for this community. We do want Russell to succeed, but that's that's not the driving force. The driving force is being that chair that we can see other people glorify God, to see extraordinary things happen in our own midst. Um, at We're about to take communion here in a minute. And at GA, one of the guys was doing communion, and he talked about the cup. And he said, imagine if you had a bottle of wine, and that bottle cost a million dollars. And you got one quarter of it in your cup. And you're holding that cup, and you're like, this is $250,000 worth of wine right here. You know, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, can I even drink it? This cup that we're coming to in a second is more precious than that. This reminds us it's a sign and seal of the blood of Christ. And we come as people who have received phenomenal things from Jesus. We see, received our own healing. We get to be a part of bringing other people to that healing, and that spiritual healing, and that physical healing, and that emotional healing. We get to be a part of all that. And so as you partake in this, think about that. That's the richness that we come into and going, we're not just keeping it for ourselves. We're not just being comfortable. But we want to pray for that person that's in that chair because they get to be a part of that million-dollar bottle of wine, the gazillion-dollar love of Christ. And that's what we're about. Psalm 67 says this. Psalm 67 
May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face shine upon us. That's good news. That's nice. We like that. But then it says that your way, God, may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the earth yield its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. That's our, my prayer for us, that we look at it and say, yes, God, bless us. We pray for jobs. We pray for health. We pray for our kids. We pray for all sorts of different things, but that's not just for us. We're blessed to be a blessing. And so as you go out this week, I want you to be thinking about, why is God blessing me? Why am I a child of the Most High? Why does God consider me one of his sons and daughters? And who am I going to pick up their litter, pick up their bed, haul them through that crowd, do strange things like breaking through roofs, do things that our community may go, what are you doing? But we want to see Jesus. We want to see other people see Jesus. That's what we're about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time today, and I thank you for...